it really is good to be with you. As, uh, as James said, I, I feel quite at home here. I've been coming for many years, on and off. Uh, well, mostly a couple of times a year. When I say on and off, I didn't have long breaks. But this year, I, I don't know if some of you were here. You remember I came in a really snowy weekend in March. And now it's hot and sticky coming over in the car. You think, yeah, Bristol is a place of extremes, perhaps. Not normally so climatically different, but it's great to be with you. This morning, we're going to be looking at a very practical and very important subject, which forms the last, I believe, of your Ephesians talks. Almost a little out of step because I think of the weather and other things have disrupted at times, but we're going to be looking into Ephesians 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 9, and we're going to be talking about Christians at work. Danger, Christians at work. So um, I think this is a really important subject. I, I, I don't think we often explore it as fully as we might, uh, but in my 35 minutes, I hope to really dig in. I trust you'll enjoy this. I, I, I trust God will speak to you out of it. That's my honest prayer. I, I, I hope it will kindle faith uh, for your work situation. If you're a young person or even older person who's, who's not yet in work or you have lost your job, I pray God will open something up and faith will rise today. Uh, maybe you're struggling at work. Maybe you love it. I hope you do. Whatever it is, I pray God will speak to you out of it. Let's read the few verses that uh, I want to base our thoughts on. So this is Ephesians 6, starting at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. By the way, fear there probably means honor, uh, like you know, just to let you know, not terror, but with respect and honor, let's use that word, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. We're going to look at this subject, and we're going to take a bit of a a lightning tour over the subject this morning. I've got 10 points, and each one will be about half an hour to an hour. Is that okay? So, uh, you know, I hope you've got about 10 hours. No, of course not. It's going to be a bit headliney, right? Um, we're going to touch quite big things, but we will land it a bit with the passage we've just read and apply it to ourselves. But I hope it all speaks to you in, in, in its way. Because there are a number of things we need to bear in mind on this whole subject of Christians at work. And in Ephesians, particularly the second part of Ephesians, we get into the practical of what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian. You're filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's changing the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act. That impacts on your behavior to others, on even the sort of jokes you tell, on the the way you spend your leisure time, on on how you gossip or don't gossip, or how, how you react to bad things that happen to you. Even Paul gets really practical. Those who've been stealing will not long, will no longer steal. They'll stop stealing and they'll start be givers. It'll radically change takers to givers and lots of other stuff. And then there's a 
the whole area of family life, you know, husbands and wives, parents and children. All of that I'm sure you've touched on one way or another. And this is sort of in that flow. It's about how being a Christian, filled with the Spirit, part of God's kingdom, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, how that impacts you in your work situation. But let's even take a step, half a step anyway, back quickly and just get a big view. First thing I want to say, God himself works. So let's get a flavor of that from Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The Bible gives us a very different insight and revelation into God to that which probably many other religions would do. God is not some like some great potentate sitting in splendor in heaven just with everybody running around him like some over-bloated sort of emperor or something or some great tribal chief who just orders people to be killed or to be spared and sits there in splendor. There is a picture right at the beginning of the Bible right in the opening chapters of a God who works, a God who makes things, a God who's creative, a God who actually made the world and everything in it. And he did it in a process. That's the startling thing about the early chapters of Genesis. I mean, you can argue about the details, and people do, but the fact of the matter is, in this very early piece of writing, thousands of years ago, there is clear insight that God through a process, made it all. There were phases in the making. And as he completed each phase, God said, that's good. I've worked hard on that and I like it. That's good. And he said it again, that's good. And when he finished the whole project, he said, that's very good. I'm really pleased with that. And the whole picture is of a God who rolls his sleeves up, actually, who works, who thinks, who's creative, who says, "Woo, we could do this, and makes it and says it's good. And there is behind everything a designer, a maker. There's a process he has used. And he continues to sustain it, like keeping it all going. But actually, he made it once from nothing. He made something. And it was good. And he worked. He worked hard. And so we learn other things. Work is honorable. That's the second thing. This is built out from what I've just said. Work is honorable. God works, so we can work. So that's my, my next point, number two. I don't know if you're popping them up at the back, but I'll be going pretty quickly. So uh, thank you. <laughs> I might not say every time, guys. Okay. <laughs> right. Work is honorable. We get that from this, this early stage of the Bible. There's nothing to be ashamed of in work. In fact, to be very honest, to never have to work at all is not the ideal pinnacle. We all want a life of leisure. No, no, it's seen as unhealthy in the Bible. Now, there's a lot of unhealthy things about wrong work. We'll touch that briefly later. But we're starting somewhere else. We're seeing that it's honorable to work and be active and creative and to make stuff and to do positive things and find satisfaction in it. There There is something positive about work. There really is. So the idea that I'd love to win the lottery and I wouldn't have to work, I just have to sit by a pool and sip drinks, that is not a biblical concept. Or that I inherit millions of pounds and don't have to work. Those things are not the pinnacle to look for. They're actually, in many ways, unhealthy. They bring their downside. 
You should be well rewarded for your work, but you are to work. Work is honorable. Thirdly, work should give satisfaction. God was satisfied with his work. He felt, that's good. I'm pleased with that. Work's meant to have that element of completion of creating something or or completing something and it may not be a huge thing it might be just a clean room or a mended car or a body healed or a person made to feel better or happier or a class well taught or some students passing their exams or maybe an administrative project completed easing life making something work well for people maybe a customer satisfied with a good product that's just what they wanted or whatever you could say a wall built straight plumbing that works and doesn't leak anything you like that's what it's meant to have it's meant to have that sense of satisfaction completion to it. Another thing we learn from this, fourth thing, work patterns should involve rest. God rested. God didn't, God wasn't a workaholic. He didn't work right the way through seven days on seven days. And actually, there's a lesson in that. Rest periods need to be built into our work. Whatever we do, we should take regular, ideally at least one in seven, breaks. And that means you don't do it at all. You do something else. It doesn't necessarily mean, unless you want to, that you sit doing nothing. I mean, maybe you're in an office all day and on that particular day, you go out for a 50-mile cycle ride or something. That's great. You'll probably feel quite tired. That's healthy. But the point is you're not in doing your normal work. There's rest built in. That's another principle we learn from what God did. And also, we also learn in those early chapters of Genesis that God actually got Adam working before the fall. So Genesis 2 verse 15 tells us this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So God worked and he got Adam before the fall working. Now you may say, what's the fall? I think most of you know, some of you might not. The fall is that terrible moment when Adam and Eve basically bought Satan's lie took on board his poison, that we don't need God to tell us what to do. We'll decide our own right and wrong. We'll be our own gods, thank you very much. We don't need him. He made it all he says, but he keeps telling us what to do. Turn our back on him, make our own choices. It was a disaster. And it led to all the sin and the damage and distortion that has polluted humanity. It's not that men and women, everything we do is wrong. That's certainly not true. But everything is sort of polluted. Everything is tarnished. Everything's touched by what the Bible calls sin, which is basically selfishness and distortion and spoil by sin. And that's what happened after the fall. But just to say, work itself as such is not part of the fall. Adam wasn't created to sit in the Garden of Eden on a sun lounger with a martini by him, just watching what God had done. Oh, it's really nice. No, actually, he was told, get in there, work it. It was creativity to it. He was to name the animals. He was to steward it. He was to make it, spread it. He was to take Eden across the... He was given a bit of authority, to be honest, and a bit of freedom to, to replicate what God had started, to, to order it. and to, That was all healthy and part of creation. But after the fall, unfortunately, we come to the curse of work. Because work became more cursed. It became almost part of the curse. And this is where our confusion can creep in. Work itself is a good thing. God does it. Adam did it. But after the fall, like everything else, it got infected 
with sin and rebellion. So we read this in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. God said to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. I commanded you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food you, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Work has been tainted by the fall. Although work itself isn't evil, there is definitely a curse element that's crept in. In all sorts of ways, people get exploited at work. There is the worst example of that in slavery and bonded labor, which has been common throughout history and sadly still is. There is the, 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 the idea, that not ideal, but the way that there's an aspiration for some to not have to work at all, but to live off what other people do. In other words, that's exploitative mentality. I will live in a gilded palace while all those per- people work for me. All these things and many others have crept in to work. Work can become a drudgery. It can become a curse. It can be sweat on the brow, a little return, thorns and thistles. And, and that's part of a sin-sick world. And it's sad, but there's some good news. The sixth point, we can be redeemed from the curse of work. I've gone quickly up to this because this is where we're going to have to begin to dig in. You see, the good news of the gospel affects absolutely everything, including the world of work. And we're told that Jesus died One of the benefits of Jesus towards us, through us putting faith in him, is that we are redeemed from the curse. The curse that went with sin, which impacted so much of life, is broken through the cross, the blood of Jesus. Now, we haven't got this on the PowerPoint. It's not our main subject this morning. But you could read it if you're interested. Galatians 3 and verses 13 to 14. Talk about being redeemed from the curse. And I believe... It impacts work and our work life. In fact, I would argue it really does. That's the whole thrust of the writing here in Ephesians and in Colossians, where a similar subject's touched on. That being redeemed affects us, first of all, our hearts, our attitude, our motivation, and ultimately that effect spreads out from us to others. We're like salt hindering corruption. We're like lights shining in a dark world. That's in Ephesians, children of light shining in a dark world. And that applies to the work environment. So the gospel redeems us or begins to actually really redeem us from the gripping curse of work. And that actually needs faith and application. We need to Understand what God's doing. That actually he's bringing us back, if you like, to the benefits of what we were made to be as men and women, human beings, as before the fall. So there was work. That was fine. But there was a rewarding, creative. There was satisfaction. It was, it was a place of hope. It was a place of completeness almost to human life. I mean, when God made Adam and Eve, we were special creations. Human beings are made in the image of God. The way they worked was not the same as the animal kingdom. It wasn't just to build nests or to catch food. Right from the start, there was a creativity, naming the animals, tending a garden. These things aren't about nest building. They're not about food catching. Yes, there's food grown in the garden, but that's not all there is. There's a creativity, there's a godlikeness. 
to these beings, we who've been made in the image of God, that the work has a sort of creative, developing, multiplying benefit, not only to them, but to those around them and to the world itself. Well, when we're redeemed, we're moving back into that concept of work through being saved. So let's come back to Ephesians 6, because Paul is writing about what I'm just talking about, but applying it to a very real life, pretty tough situation. I guess you noticed it. First of all, he writes to slaves. Look, Ephesians 6, verse 5 and 8. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes are on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. For us, I trust that will not be slavery, but will be employees, if you like, working for others. We'll come back to the context in a moment. The other verse applies to those who are in charge of other people, who have people working for them. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. However grim your work situation is, and I know some are grim, I trust that for the majority of you here, they are not parallel to the situation some of the first recipients of this letter were in. Slavery was common in the first century. It wasn't all the gross expressions of slavery we've seen see sometimes today and have seen historically and shamefully not unrelated to Bristol, where, where people were ripped from their environment in Africa and taken to the plantations of America and the New World. That's terrible, but slavery has never been great. Probably in the first century, it was much more a variety. If you had a good master, you might have had a reasonable life. It might have been quite secure and provided for, uh, a bit like, I guess, being a servant in a stately home, a Downton Abbey sort of place in our own culture 100, 200 years ago. But, but on the other hand, you didn't have freedom. You had no reward for your work other than you probably had a roof over your head and decent food and a fair degree of security. But it all depended on your master's whim and maybe he died and his son or whatever inherited. He might have been horrible and you wouldn't have no say on it. So it was pretty grim. And yet Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to these people the words we've just read. What is going on? How does it work? Well, I want to tell you that what's written here was dynamite actually. Because there was something going on that was changing people on the inside. That's what the gospel does. And that change was going to have a, a, a lasting impact, like, like salt hindering corruption, like, like yeast going through a, a lump. It was going to have a lasting impact on the way people viewed life in many ways, including work life. And wherever the gospel really is believed, and that is utterly essential, that it's really believed, it's serious faith, it's life-changing faith, it will have an impact. In our own country, things that are probably now sort of taken for granted about uh, work hours, restricting the exploitation of labor, 
though I know we're always having a fight for it, uh, you know, unions and things, you really trace them back. They grow out of real Christian moves in our country, out of the mid-19th century or the 18th century, the Wesleyan uh, revival particularly, but others in the, in the 19th century prison reform, all sorts. I could give you a long list. And they grow out of real Christians getting hold of something and beginning to bring change. So this stuff is actually dynamite. What's the key? What's he talking about? What's he saying to all of us this morning? What's God saying? Well, I'll tell you. The next point, I think it's number seven. First principle, get it, we all work for the Lord. Now, this is very important. If you become a Christian, you have to realize that everything you do is for the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. What a noble way of describing it. That's what uh, Paul says in Colossians about the same thing, slightly different phrasing. You realize it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Do you realize that? That's true of every one of you. We have, we being churches and church leaders like me, sometimes not helped ourselves by creating a, a sort of di- division between full-time Christian work, people like me who get paid for what we do and do it all the time, leading churches, which I've done for many years, and, and secular work, which we call, and there can be a sense of like, well, that's a bit second best. That's all rubbish. Okay, I mean it, it's rubbish. We all work for Jesus. We are all full time for Jesus Christ. All of us, whatever we do. And we need to understand that because it revolutionizes how we think about it and pray about it and our faith expectations as well. And actually, funnily enough, I'll let you into a secret. Being a full time church worker is not as great as it's cracked up to be. It really isn't. You guys know that. And I did 10 years working as a school teacher, and nearly five of those overlapped with also being a church elder. So I was a school teacher and a church elder. Then I went full-time, as it's called, and so I have been on both sides of the fence. And I can tell you this principle applies whichever side you are. If you are a church leader or an impactor even, or an administrator, it doesn't matter what you are, but you work full-time in a charity, whatever, Christian setup. If you don't understand you're serving the Lord Christ, it will be miserable. You've got to still think, I'm serving Jesus. Otherwise, you'll be at the beck and call of every funny little thing. Leaders can get into like, you do serve people, but before and above that, you serve the Lord Christ. And if you don't do it on that basis, you're heading for a trouble. You've got to see Jesus is my boss. <laughs> now, if you are working for the national health, working in schools, selling uh, cars, I don't know, doing plumbing, uh, working on computers, whatever it is, doctor, you also need to see, I serve the Lord Christ. Amen? This is not a psychological trick. It is true. Whoever you are, whatever you do, your life is serving him. I understand you've been looking a little bit last week and this week, perhaps to some degree, about this submission word. And it can be a slightly funny word, but actually the point is, behind it all, we're all submitted to Jesus. And we submit to secondary authorities where Jesus tells us to because we're obeying Jesus, and only because of that. So our basic fundamental submission obedience uh, sort of template is to Jesus. 
And then that has sub-effects. Jesus says, I want you to obey those over you at work. I want you to obey the government, uh, husbands and wives, parents, whatever it is. And, and yes, we do where we can obey. But if they call us to do something which is clearly contrary to the will of Jesus, we disobey. We don't dishonor. We never dishonor, but we disobey. That's what the New Testament did. So you'll find people like Peter and John and Paul, always respectful. They're not revolutionaries. They're not trying to blow up the Romans. They're not trying to cut their throat. They even speak respectfully. But when those authorities say to them, you must not preach in the name of Jesus, they say, we're going to obey him, not you. And they go out and do exactly the opposite of what they're told to do. Why? Because in a secure, peaceful way, the whole thing is, I obey Jesus. Jesus said to respect the law, so I pay my taxes. But if you tell me I can't preach about Jesus, I will disobey you. I will respect you, but I'll disobey you. And that's how it works in home. Parents could ask a child to do something that's clearly wrong. It might be very wrong. You say, I can't do that. I honor you, but I'm not going to obey that. There is a difference. We're submissive to Jesus first, and as a sub-impact uh, of all that, those who Jesus tells us to. Now, this is over into work. I mustn't get sidetracked too much. So at work, we're working for Jesus. So you have to think, if I am working for Jesus, how will I behave? I will be honest. I won't lie. I won't con people. I won't try and get more money than I should out of them, or whatever it is. I won't try and do a, 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 a sort of cowboy job builder thing, you know, try and stick it together with plaster because they don't own it, sticking plaster because they don't own any different. I won't even think like that. And, I, and, I, and also, I will speak respectfully to those who are ordering me to do things where I can. But if they order me to do something that's contrary, like lie, I won't do it. And, and, and so on and so forth. And if I'm a boss, I will behave as I believe Jesus behaves to me. So I will show care and regard for those under me. I'll make sure they're not exhausted, not asked to go beyond reasonable levels, that they're well rewarded, that they feel secure and content as best I can help in what they're doing. Because I'm behaving to them as Jesus behaves to me. And that's the fundamental route that we all work to the Lord. Now, there's something else that comes out in this passage and in the Colossian passage, which is very similar. It's this, number eight, work and eternal rewards. Now, this might shock you, but both of the passages on work that are very practical in the New Testament, this one and the one around Colossians 3, verses 24 to 25, you can check it later if you like, say that we will get eternal rewards for the way we work. Now, I don't think that means if you really, really make a very, very beautiful sort of wall. I mean, I think that's okay. That'd be good that God has said that. And then someone who's not quite so good at it won't get a reward, like as though it was sort of prizes. It's about your attitude to work. Let me try and quickly unpack this. I, let me, I don't even know if you realize this, but when you become a Christian... You will not, you're saved from condemnation. (laughs) You're saved for eternity. You will never be judged for your sin and sent out from the presence of God into outer darkness because Jesus bore your sins in his body on the cross. Amen? It's great to be saved. We are accepted in Christ. 
That will never be reversed. We're born again of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to be unborn and killed off. That's wonderful. And then the Bible also says that there, are, there will be a place of judgment for Christians, the judgment seat of Christ, where there'll be rewards and losses even within the context of ultimate salvation. And when you understand that, it's very interesting to see what sort of things do you get rewarded for. Well, the most specific I can give you, I can give you two, is how you work or how you behave at work and giving a cup of cold water to someone in Jesus' name, visiting the sick, I could add to that one, uh, or those in prison. You think, surely it's about preaching a great sermon. It's about seeing hundreds of people saved. It's about a, a, a life's sort of changing prophecy I give. No, it's not. Those things are really the work of God that you just have a privilege to be part of. God will reward you for your actions, for your character, for your obedience to him in whatever context you're in. And actually, there's a great leveling in all this. Let me give you an example. Dear old Billy Graham died this year, didn't he? Now, I'm not in a position to make a strong statement on this, but I suspect he will receive a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But I would dare to say Billy Graham will not be primarily rewarded for the millions of people who directly or indirectly became Christians through his preaching because that was really the work of the Holy Spirit. He will be rewarded for his faithfulness, for his obedience to what God called him to do, for, I would argue in his case, probably it looks, for staying consistent and righteous in a world where many around him crashed and burned. So faithful to his wife, for example, not with his t taking a lot of money out of his organization for himself. As far as we can judge, and I think that will prove true, he walked faithfully in those areas. That's where the reward will come. And that can apply to you. You may only be a cleaner in a school, but you can do it faithfully and well and to Jesus and honor him and you will be well rewarded. God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You can shine for Jesus anywhere. You can give a cup of cold water anywhere. You can visit the sick anywhere or the bows in prison. And these are the things that bring reward. Now, this is the Bible, okay? So I want us to be encouraged in faith. Your work situation is a place where rewards can be earned by being like Jesus in the work situation. Let's move on quickly. I've got two more. Work is a major area of witness. Now, this is not specific in the passage, but I think it's by implication. In our country, where we live, modern Britain, well under 10% of the people around us will ever go to a church in any form. So actually, maybe 95% or 96%, I don't know, of the people around us will not come in to have the great privilege of hearing someone like me preaching. <laughs> Not as a starting place. But most of them, potentially, can meet a Christian at work. Certainly a lot more than 95%, uh, you know, a higher percentage will meet us at work. It is a great place to be a witness. Not just with your words, but with your actions. In fact, more with your actions, much more. Because if, it, if you treat it too much like words, that's not actually always a good example. So no, you're paid to work, right? So if you spend hours preaching to people at work, that may be not a great example because you're misusing the time you're paid for, possibly. 
I mean, it's great to share faith, maybe while you're traveling or working or over a cup of coffee. I'm not against that, but just be thoughtful about it. But your witness is how you do your job and how you cope with the horrible ups and downs of work when everybody else is tearing their hair out, swearing and cursing about it, and how you handle it is a great witness. Or if you are a boss or a manager, how you treat people, that you really listen to their complaints, you can't always follow them up or can't always do what they want, but you can take it seriously. You cannot show any favoritism. You can be even-handed and careful how you handle people. Treat them fairly and well, thoughtfully and carefully. All of these things are witness. And I can assure you, because it did happen to me uh, when I was working, that out of work, sometimes people will come up to you privately because they know who you are, they know you believe in Jesus, you know you're a Christian, and they'll ask you quite deep heart questions. I've had it happen to me. People who I thought were quite antagonistic. I said, actually, can I talk to you about something? And suddenly it's about a marriage gone wrong or it's a cancer diagnosis or it's in one case, I vividly remember, it's a very weird experience. A chap who I thought was an atheist who went to a dinner party and they turned it into a seance. And he was quite disturbed. A male teacher at the school I was at, middle-aged man, was quite disturbed and he wanted to talk to me about it. What do you make of that, John? He said after he told me. And I talked to him. I talked to him and I said, there's a supernatural, Peter. And we talked about it. I said, that's not legitimate, but there is a legitimate way. And I, I honestly had a chance to talk the gospel. Not in two minutes, but over time. Now, you never, but that came out of the fact he knew what I believed, he knew how I behaved. There's massive opportunities to reach people with Jesus, love, and the gospel at work. Amen? So it is right on the cutting edge of the mission field. Let's finally look at the last one. Spirit-filled Christians bring change to the workplace. I do believe this. And this is honestly the way it has often worked historically. If you are a serious follower of Jesus and filled with his spirit, being led by the spirit, showing the fruit of the spirit, and even operating sometimes in the gifts of the spirit, and you are a bottom of the pile employee or a top of the pile boss, there are going to be changes that you bring. You bring the presence of God. When you turn up, the kingdom of God turns up at your workplace. In effect, when you turn up, Jesus turns up. That's what happens. When you're teaching that class, there's something special. Jesus is there. The Holy Spirit is there. When you're going into the operation room, when you're nursing that person, Jesus is in the room. The Spirit of God's there, for goodness sake. This is exciting. You can pray. You can ask, God, give me wisdom. I've done it. Done it with difficult classes years ago. I said, God, Holy Spirit, I prayed under my breath in tongues. I need some wisdom. I mean, I know these boys are troubled. I know that. I can explain all that, but they're horrible at the moment. I don't care. I don't care if they're troubled. I just need to control them and stop them fighting each other. So, you know, you're, you know what I mean? It's real life. It's not mamby-pamby. Oh, dear boys, you're nice. These are horrors. Some of these will be in prison in five years. God, give me wisdom. Give me strength. And God gives you wisdom and strength. And I tell you, you haven't got wisdom. I lack wisdom, Lord. Ask him. (laughs) Pray in tongues. 
Go and take a loo break and pray in tongues, then come back and talk again to the boss that's really winding you up. You know, this is the reality. We bring the presence of God. We bring change. And as you understand this and grow as a Christian, if you're in a position of influence, you can influence things at work. I mean, there's all stacks of stuff, apart from the general fact of how Jesus behaved. When you read your Bible, I could go on all morning. I am, aren't I? I don't say anything. When, when, you read, shush, when you read your Bible, there's all sorts of stuff in there. Right through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you get things where, here's a little taste, Mal- Malachi 3.5, God says, I will come near to you with judgment. I will be quick to testify against those who defraud the laborer of their wages. Old and New Testament. Pay people fairly. Handle them fairly. Deuteronomy, you can find several passages. won't quote in time. Deuteronomy 22, where if you exploit people, God's your judge. If you actually do not look after their safety so that they get hurt or killed at work, God holds you responsible. So there's a sense in which God says, I am for fair working practices. I am for proper wages for a fair day's work. You know, I'm, I'm for this. And it's all through the Bible. God is for work that has some satisfying conclusion, albeit quite modest, like a nicely cleaned toilet. That's fine. You feel you've done it well. But there's an element of satisfaction. And God is for us, if we're in charge of the toilet cleaners, saying, thank you, you made a good job of that. I'm pleased with that. They're the best toilets in the city. If that's true, you feel, yeah, they're really nicely done. I like the way you folded the toilet paper. Tell them. I mean, I'm not only half joking. I'm not totally joking. You know, that, that we bring something of the, of the spirit of God, of, bring, of the kingdom of God to our workplace. I tell you, that is the key to change. There's all sorts of things. Some of us have got more influence than others. And if you have got influence, you can make sure it's good, it's righteous, that it serves people well, that it gives them a fair product for their... God said, I hate unfairness. I hate conning people. Again, Old Testament, God says, I hate dishonest scales. You think, what's a dishonest scale? Well, I'll tell you what it was. People had two sorts of weights, extra light one and extra heavy one. They used the extra, oh, I don't know which way around they used it really, extra light one, I don't know, forget it. You can work it out. You're cleverer than me. They used, when they were buying stuff, they made sure that they got more stuff for their money than they should have done. When they're selling stuff, they make sure they give people less than they should for the money they've received. You understand? Probably better than I do. I think I've got it right. But basically, it was conning, serious conning. And God says, I hate that. And you get it about in the, all through the Old Testament. God hates fiddling people. You know, you don't rip them off. You don't try and get as much money as you can out of them and give them as little in return. That is totally not the kingdom of God. Now, honestly, it's, if we are real kingdom people, we will bring change. It will be costly at times. We say, I'm not going to lie to people. I'm not going to. That's not, for, that's not a reduction. I'm not going to say it is. Let's give them a real reduction. And, you know, it depends on your power and authority. But at the level you're at, you can bring the kingdom of God. Amen? You really can. And I believe it brings difference. The presence of God, the salt of it, your presence, the, the yeast of the kingdom is permeating the whole working environment. And I could go on a lot longer. I'm not going to. I want you to stand. Let's stand together.